he counted about 80 kids. Is that about, about right? Wow. That's a, that's a step up from like 25 we had last year. And so, and we put out a thousand eggs on the lawn and they were scooped up in about three minutes. It was crazy. But it was also a great chance to share the good news of Jesus Christ as we talked about, um, Jesus entry into Jerusalem and all the way to his, his empty tomb. It was a busy week for me. Personally, I was at a conference earlier this week and, uh, Please uh, stack the chair seven high after the service. But I uh, was able to be in Indianapolis at a, at a conference called the Gospel Coalition. Me and 8,000 of my closest friends. And I was there and, um, you know, it was one of those things that I didn't know if anyone I knew was going to be there. And I was praying, Lord, if there's somebody here who knows me, help me to run into them. Guess who I ran into? Tom and Rosie Thatcher, and it was a great conference. I, I also had a chance to run into some, some friends from, from seminary and another brother from my home church. It was a great connection time. But it was focused in on the epistle of the Galatians. And if you know the story about the, the church in Galatia, it was a church that was plagued by people saying, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. And you know, Paul fighting back saying, no, Jesus is our righteousness. And so once again, to be grounded again in the gospel that Jesus, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and Lord willing, you'll reap some of the benefits of, of that. But it's a great time to come back with that heart into Easter. A calendar time where we remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man whose life impacted history, individual lives, and eternity more than anyone who ever walked this earth. And so we're going through this short, short uh, series on what I call Jesus the King. And last week we looked into uh, Mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 38. And we're in Mark during this time talking about Jesus as King, uh, the King's confession, Jesus revealing himself in this question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter turns around and says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are God's promised King. And you're the one who's come to reign on God's throne. Jesus acknowledges Peter's conclusion and even tells the disciples, I want you to keep quiet about this. But then he tells them that he's a different kind of king. A king that's going to come to suffer. A king that's going to come and be rejected by the religious leaders of the people and one who must, who must be killed, who must die. And then three days later, rise from the dead. This is quite shocking to the disciples who are expecting a different kind of king. In fact, Peter, who just said, you're the Christ, turns around and rebukes him. But Jesus is a different kind of king because the kingdom he brings is not one of military might, but one that starts in the hearts of men and women. A reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men and women who have rebelled against him, who are unable to bridge that gap. And what he came to do is bridge that gap by offering up himself. But make no mistake, Jesus, although he comes in meekness, is the king. He's the king of kings. He calls those who would follow him to show a loyalty to him and his good news to the point where it feels like death 
In that same chapter, chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It brings this truth to life, that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. But now we're at the point in the story where Jesus throws off his secret identity. He's come to reveal himself and his mission. He's come to reveal himself in what I call the king's procession. If you have your Bibles, you might want to join along with me in Mark chapter 11. But before we get into God's word, let me pray for us. So Lord Jesus, you are the king, and this is your word. So I pray that you will reveal yourself to our hearts today as the king of glory, the king who came to take residence in us, the king who came, who died, who rose from the dead, and is coming again. Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you do in in our hearts what we need you to do, the surgery of grace, and placing our faith completely in you and nothing else. So Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied in the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing in tying this colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them so to do, and the people let them go. Number one, Jesus is the king who knows. Jesus is the king who knows. And this may seem like a minor detail in the grand scheme of this story. But everything these disciples encounter, Jesus has already told them what they're going to experience. What they're going to see, what they're going to find, what they're going to interact with, what happened. Now I grant you that Mark is a is a gospel that's short on detail. It's usually doing the big picture. And I grant you that this man who, who owned the, or the people that owned the donkey, even knew Jesus, perhaps. As the disciples said, the Lord has need of it. They seemed to be willing to understand who was, was requiring it. But Mark and the other Gospels describe Jesus' instructions more in terms of predicting what the disciples would experience than a procedure and scope and sequence. Jesus is making his way up from Jericho, which is about 25 feet below sea level, up a treacherous 18-mile road that's 2,500 feet above sea level. That's a pretty big change in elevation. But between here and there, there are no cell phones. There's no phone to call ahead about what's going to happen. He knew what his disciples needed to look for. He knew where they should find it, what they needed to say to release it. Just as he knows what he's heading into as he goes to Jerusalem. To suffer, to be rejected, to die. 
He knew just also that he would rise from the dead. He knew that just as he knows what's going on in your life right now. And he knows what's going on in my life right now. And that's pretty important. Because a king who calls you to die as you follow him, and not only has the power to deal with whatever we, we might be heading to into, knows where we come from and knows where we're heading. So we can trust him. Because he knows. He is the king who knows. And he knows what's set before him, even in this situation. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread their branches, they had cut in, cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is the king who saves. Jesus is the king who saves. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, there is a crowd there who's ready to welcome him in this procession. His disciples will take their cloaks and put it on this this donkey. And others will take their cloaks and put them on the ground before the donkey, and some will cut down palm branches. Now that might not seem like a big deal to us. If you're like me, you probably have more than one coat sitting in your closet, right? We live in Minnesota. You've got to have a few. But here's the deal. Most people didn't own more than one cloak. And that was their major outer garment. It's what they wore probably every day to protect them from the elements. And if you were a poor person, it's probably what kept you warm at night. You could even use it as collateral for a loan. At the end of the day, it should be returned, but that's how precious a cloak was. It was your most important garment to protect you. In essence, as they put these garments on the ground, they were saying, we honor you with our most important garment. I don't know about you, but I even get queasy when that little lamb's coming through here, right? I'm wondering, you know, what's going to come up the back of that thing? There's a little, you know, towel behind it. I get that, right? But to have a little donkey walk, you know, down on your cloak, you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm kind of rolling my dice there. What's going to happen? And I'm not trying to be funny, but here's what I'm saying. This is how they were valuing Christ. And they were shouting, Hosanna! Which is actually two Hebrew words, which means save now. Save us, we pray. It had morphed into a kind of a general praise like hallelujah. But it, they were giving the right words. And their words come directly from Psalm 118. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you look at Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26, you, you'll read that. Hosanna in the highest. An indication that this salvation was somehow going to come from heaven, that somehow the Lord was using this man to save them. And they were right. More than they knew. Jesus, 
whose name means Yahweh is salvation, had come to save them. He is the God who puts on flesh to give them salvation. But they were wrong also. Because of the expectation of what he'd come to save them from. Again, many were expecting that the Messiah would come and throw off Roman rule, the rule of the Gentiles. They expected it, saying, Blessed is he who comes, excuse me, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hope that he would somehow restore the Davidic monarchy. And yes, Jesus was a blood descendant of David, and he was rightful heir to that throne. The salvation he brings is a salvation from sin and being separated from a holy God. You know, something that might be an indication there is the animal, again, that he rides. It's this diminutive colt of a donkey. It's not a big stallion. It's this small donkey. It's kind of an animal that's more suitable probably for children or a hobbit. To ride in there, right? This thing is a small, small uh, donkey's colt. It's the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal. Of a donkey. You see, what we see here in Jesus entering Jerusalem like this is a juxtaposition that denotes the perfection of who Jesus is as our Savior. Yes, He is the mighty King, sent, Son of God, sent from heaven. He commands the very forces of nature. He heals the lame, the blind, the leper. He raises the dead. He feeds 5,000 people. And by the way, I just got a picture of that. Again, I told you I was in this conference. 8,000 people in there. It's like, it's like the Mayo Civic Center times three. This place filled with people. Two-thirds of that crowd is what Jesus would feed. That's pretty amazing. He casts out demons. Nothing is impossible for him. And yet he's seated on a donkey's colt. He knows both his power and his gentleness and his willingness to come and be with us. To come and save us in our weakness. He humbled himself. He condescended to us. He came to do the will of the Father. Let me say, if Jesus had come as a conquering king, as the people had hoped he would, all he could bring would be judgment. Even those who were his followers, because God's justice, his true justice, would remain unsatisfied. All we would have to look forward to would be justice. You see, we need a, a Savior who is powerful enough to save us from our sin and the grave and gentle enough to meet us in our weakness. Other juxtapositions about Jesus, just real quickly. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, we were singing about this. Worthy is the Lamb. Remember when we were singing about that? John is told to look. Look upon the Lion of Judah, 
the root of David who has triumphed. And then when he looked upon the throne, what did he see? A lamb that had been slain. Juxtaposition. Great power. And the weakness and meekness to take our place as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> and in Romans chapter 3 verse, chapter 8 verse 3, excuse me, let me, I got ahead of myself. Just the fact that in Jesus, He is the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in Colossians 3, uh, 2, 9. But He's also the one in Romans 8, 3 who sent in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offer, to condemn the sin of man and save us. Jesus is the one who saves. And He will indeed come one day as a conquering king. Revelation 19.11 talks about that. But right now, His salvation is available. It was available then and it's available now. As he comes into town, where does the king go? Where does the king go? Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig leaf, a tree in leaf, fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When they reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Jesus is the king who reveals hearts. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, of course, where is he going to go in Jerusalem? To the temple. The place where God's presence is to dwell. But an interesting thing happens. I don't know if you noticed this. There's a great crowd throng singing Hosanna as he comes into town. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He gets to the temple and it's empty. There's a dissipation. The crowd went away. This is the king, right? Where's all that enthusiasm? Where did it go? What happened? Now, verse 11 tells us it's late. Perhaps the temple is shutting down as the sun is setting. But this is the king. This is the one they were waiting for. Are we going to let a little, a little sunlight stop that? It reveals the fickleness on the crowd's part who at one moment are very excited about Jesus, but something gets in the way. And you know what's sad? Is that in five days, some of these in the, in the same crowd who've been shouting Hosanna are going to say, crucify him. The fickleness of the crowd. It's just like the parable of the sower. A seed that falls on rocky soil and it immediately sprouts. But then when some heat comes, something else to distract, 
it quickly withers. I think we need to take it to heart. We need to be careful not to mistake enthusiasm for faith and to take to heart ourselves. We can find ourselves at one moment very excited about Jesus, about what he is doing, but very easily get distracted. Very easily get distracted. We were joking around before worship this morning and uh, we with the worship team. And Bobby brought up an episode he had been with some people who were big Packer fans and even went to church with them. And a Viking fan and a Packer fan get together. I don't know. There's a wideness in God's mercy. But they were sitting there and they wanted to get church over because they wanted to make sure they were there in time to watch the Packer game and prepare for that. And folks, don't hear me preach against the NFL, all right? That's not my, that's my point. But oftentimes, we can get distracted by good things. We get excited about Jesus, and then we get excited about the football game, or what's coming next, or what we're going to do this afternoon. I don't know what's on your mind right now. Maybe you're thinking about lunch. But if Jesus the King is doing some, some work in your heart, don't be distracted by that other thing. Why were there nobody keep nobody why was there nobody there at the temple to greet the king? They were distracted somehow. Revealing hearts, that's what Jesus was doing. But here's what happens the next day. Okay? And we get this is a word picture about in Jesus' actions. The second day, Jesus goes to this fig tree. And some people don't like this, this story about Jesus, but he sees this fig tree. And because there are leaves on it, he expects that there might be some fruit on it for him to eat. In fact, if you know about Mideastern fig trees, what's true about them is when the leaves are there, there might not be fully grown figs on it, but there are little nodules that you can eat. That should be what's there. And Jesus gets there, and there's nothing. There's nothing. It's kind of a word picture about where Israel is at in receiving its king. It seems to have a fruitful response, but there's nothing there. It illustrates we can be very religious. We can be involved in a lot of work in the church even. But unless we are connected with the king, we're not going to have fruit. And Jesus even curses it. A few in the next day, they notice that this tree actually dies. It's a living illustration. We need to be connected with him who is the true vine. We need to be ready to receive our king. We need to remain in him, abide in him, that we might bear much fruit. As the story continues, Jesus becomes even more demonstrative. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money, the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry the merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. 
Jesus is the king who makes a way for all nations. Now it's easy to think that Jesus is upset because of the, the temple folks jacking up the prices of the exchange rates for money. By the way, the reason that they exchanged the money was because they, they didn't want to offer up money that had an image on it, that of Caesar, who claimed to be God, right? Also, because it was very pure. The Tyrrhenian from the city of Tyre, a shekel was very similar to the, the temple shekel because, again, it had no images on it and it was a very pure, um, pure as far as its silver or its gold and it had no image on it. So there was an exchange of money that took place. I suspect a little fee was involved in that. But there was also, again, uh, the selling of sacrifices. If you lived far away, you didn't, you know, pack your animal all the way to, you know, the temple. What you do is you'd sell it, take the money, and go to the temple and then buy an animal there, whether it was a sheep, an ox, or a goat. So here's what's here's what's happening. The temple complex is a is a uh, area of concentric squares, okay, or actually rectangles. The first is an area called the court of the Gentiles, because the Gentiles couldn't come any closer in that area. It's an area that's about 500 yards by 325 yards. That is the only place where the Gentiles could worship at the temple. The next was the temple of, of the women, next the sons of Israel, and then the Holy of Holies. But this is the place where the, the Gentiles could come and pray and worship. But what had happened is this place had been turned into a stockyard, a buying bazaar for sacrifices. And by the way, during a Passover, Josephus said there approximately about 250,000 sheep that were sacrificed during Passover. That's a lot of, that's a lot of, of sheep. So can you imagine what it'd be like if you're trying to pray and all of a sudden you've got this little herd of sheep being, you know, brought past you, you know, and it's it's not only the smell, the sound, but it's like, what is going on here? And here's what's going on, is that the thought, the popular thought that when Messiah would come, he would come and kick the Gentiles out of the temple. Instead, Jesus, who is the real king, becomes their advocate that they might pray, that they might have access to the living God. And he quotes Isaiah 57.6, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he also quotes Jeremiah 7.11, But you have made it a den of robbers. Tim Keller, author and pastor, has written in his book, King's Crossing, or King's Cross, that Jesus is there to actually challenge the whole sacrificial system. He's not questioning the legitimacy, but he's there to replace it. To replace it. Because in the temple, there are multiple act, there are multiple sacrifices and access to God is limited. And you can't come empty handed because he's a holy God. But even if you're a good a Jew, good standing, or even if you're a priest, you're only one priest. The high priest has access to God. And that's one time a year in the Holy of Holies. And he has to come with blood. 
There's only one person who can stand directly in the presence of God. But Jesus will come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and will give access to all by His blood. That's why it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, that when He dies, the veil is torn from the Holy of Holies. That veil that kept us separated from God is torn. Say, now there's access to God. The Apostle Paul expounds on this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. He says, but now, Christ Jesus, you who are in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of, out of, out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see, Jesus makes a way for all of us to have access to God, for all to experience His salvation. That as Romans 10, 13 says, that all, not just Jews, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Stand up, Bob. He's looking good, isn't he? And I didn't, I didn't make him a stand for that. But here's the deal about brother Bob Mancock and myself. We were not born in the same town. We were not born in the same country. We were not born in the same hemisphere. But because of Christ, Bob is my brother. I'm a little paler than Bob. But he is my brother. Because of Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. And we are both loved and forgiven because of Jesus. That's my point in thinking of Bob. Because we were born worlds away. Lives completely apart. And yet because of Christ... We are brothers. And now he's brought us to live in Rochester, Minnesota together for this time. Praise God. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for being my living illustration. But here's my point. And that is great. And it is wonderful. But here's my point. We needed Jesus to come for us because we did not measure up. Again, kind of back to our conversation we were having before. Before worship, we were talking about athletes and you know how it's easy to admire them. We admire them because they do things that we cannot do. If we were on their team, we would not measure up. But here's the thing. Before a holy God, nobody measures up. But we have Christ. And the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world covers you. All of a sudden, you measure up before a holy God. Not because He sees you, but because He sees Him. 
That is good news. He's the king who makes way for all nations, for all men, for all women. Folks, this is good news <laughs> to proclaim, especially in this Easter season. But again, Jesus' behavior is quite shocking, right? You don't see me come out during, you know, the cookie time before and turn over all the cookies and say, you know, you've made this a den for Benny Crocker. I, you know, I, I mean, this is shocking behavior, right? But Jesus has the credentials for this because he is the king. But you can't remain neutral with the king. You cannot remain neutral with Jesus. Pick it up at verse 18. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Jesus is the king who makes you make a choice. See, when Jesus comes in, he's not backing down. He knows exactly what he's saying when he sits on the, that little donkey. He knows exactly what he's doing in receiving Hosanna. He doesn't tell him to be quiet. He says, yeah, you're right. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows exactly what he's doing when he comes and he cleans out the temple and says, my house shall be a house for, of prayer for all nations. He's speaking for himself. The chief priests and elders, they didn't believe in him. But they feared him, so they figured they need to get rid of him by killing him. And even though they will succeed, they'll prove harder to get rid of than they thought. And we'll talk about that next week as we talk about the king's resurrection. But Jesus comes to each one of us. He comes to each one of us as the biblical picture of the king. Not just the king of Israel, but the king of all kings. Of my life, of your life, whether you're submitting to him or not. You have to make a decision. Is he who he really says he is? Or he's not. He's the king. Or he's not. He won't allow you to remain neutral. You can reject him. You can resist him. You can repel him. You can ignore him. But in doing so, you are making a choice about this king. And let me remind you again that he says he is coming back one day, riding on a white horse. And at that moment, what he gives is, is not grace, but judgment. Judgment to all those who have rejected him. What will you do with this king? What will you do with this king? Will you surrender to him? Knowing that he is the king. Will you trust him? Knowing that it is only he that can save. We're all going to fall short before holy God. But he does not. And that's the blessing of being in Christ. Because in him, you have the righteousness of God. And will you follow him? Because he knows. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. 
and he knows what the future holds, and his ways lead to life. This is not just a children's story, not a children's song. It's what will you do with the king who came in and announced his reign to Jerusalem more than 2,000 years ago. What will you do with the king? We pray for us, and then I'll have Bobby and the worship team come and close us.